Well, hello, church. It's so good to be with you again and open God's word and see what the Holy Spirit would have for us today. He is good. He will teach us. He will help us. And we need him. So why don't you go ahead, grab a copy of God's word, open up to 2 Peter chapter 1. We're in 2 Peter chapter 1, right near the end of the Bible. 2 Peter chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at the first 15 verses today. 2 Peter chapter 1, 1 to 15. We're all pretty forgetful at times, aren't we? We can be pretty forgetful. Uh, I think if we were honest, it might even be hard to look back at uh, what we ate for dinner this past week. I can't remember. What happened? What did I eat on Tuesday? What happened on Wednesday? Was there a Thursday this week? I can't quite remember. We can forget a lot of things. I know I can be quite forgetful at times, and uh, I seem to only remember the things I want to remember, or, well, I'm better at different times than others. Even this year, you know, I was really bad. Uh, September 3rd is our anniversary, and... I might have forgot, almost, I just, a little bit, okay, I was, I was in trouble for a moment, all right, but I recovered, I recovered good, okay, but uh, there was a moment, I was like, is that this Thursday, is that this Thursday, and it was, okay, I got to cancel my meetings, got to move things around, it's the anniversary, we can be forgetful at times, and that's just part of who we are as humans, as people, we're not God, we forget things at different times, but we need to improve, Peter here gives us a great reminder. And that's the purpose of this, as we'll see in the later, latter part of our text today. But why don't we read it together and pray. If you would stand with me for the reading of God's word, and we'll look at this wonderful reminder that we need today. It says this in 2 Peter chapter 1, 1-15. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire." For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Though you know them and are established in the truth that you have, I think it is right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Let's pray. Jesus Christ, 
Lord, we come together right now and humble ourselves before you. Lord, we are not masters of this world. We are not kings of the universe, Lord. We often can't remember what happened earlier this week. God, we are feeble-minded at times. Lord, we are forgetful. But God, through your spirit right now, Lord, would you remind us of who we are in Jesus Christ? Would you remind us of who we're called to be in Jesus Christ? Holy Spirit, I ask, help me now as I teach this text, Lord. Be with us now as we hear from you, O Lord, and open our hearts, O God. Lord, spur us on to these things. We need your encouragement, Lord. We need your help. Lord, we are unable to be successful in this life apart from you. And so, God, would you be glorified now as we learn from your word, and would you help us understand it? We ask for you to do what only you can do. And we ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Please be seated. So as you saw there in verses 12 to 15, Peter is writing these things in way of reminder for us. Why? Because we are often so forgetful. He is reminding us who we are in Jesus Christ. He is reminding us of what we need to become because we are in Jesus Christ. And and he says that he is going to make every effort here in, in verse 13 to stir you up by way of reminder. To stir you up by way of reminder. Listen, this is the honest truth with us tonight. We need a reminder. We need to be reminded of who we are in Christ and what that means for our lives. We need this reminder more frequently than we might like or we might think, but oh boy, do we need this reminder. The thesis of this section of the book is really in verses 3 and 4. And after verses 1 and 2, as he gives this wonderful greeting, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Don't you love that? He says, I'm Simon Peter, a servant first and an apostle of Jesus Christ. He doesn't come in flaunting his apostleship, but first he claims that he's only a servant. And every good leader is. He's a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. And then he tells us who this book is for. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is for those who have been saved by Jesus Christ. This letter was not just written 2,000 years ago to some other people. If you are here right now, if you're listening and reading this text right now, and you've obtained a faith from Jesus Christ, this is written for you. To remind you of what God has done and who you can be. And he says in verse 2, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. Oh, how we need grace And oh, how we need peace. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Be encouraged. Be encouraged. These words are for you. The thesis of this book is really in verses 3 and 4. And so we need to quickly understand what he's saying here. I mean, we could spend an entire sermon or two just in these verses. But I think it's true to the text the way that we've set it up today. But 3 and 4 are so crucial for us to understand before we get started into our points. It says this, his divine power, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. His divine power has done this. 
God has called us to his own glory and excellence. And since he has called us to his glory and excellence, we are able to live lives that are filled with godliness. Verse 4 is really a commentary on verse 3, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. And that's really the title of our sermon right now. The life of precious and great promises. He has offered us precious and great promises. What will we do with them? So that through them you may become, this is amazing, partakers of the divine nature. Having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So we need to sum up these two verses. What is he saying here? Really what he's saying is that God is great and all-powerful, and because of that, he has given us righteousness, he has given us faith, he has made great promises to us, and if we obey those promises, if we listen to those promises, if we live out those promises, we can partake in the divine nature of God. Does that mean we become God? No, it, becomes, it means that we become like our Savior. We become more like him through sanctification. We become more like him in his holiness. Yes, we're saved from death and hell, but we're not just saved from that. We're saved unto righteousness. We're saved unto a life of holiness. And so we can sum that up in this sentence. Through God's power, We have received great promises that make us partakers in his nature. Through God's power, we have received great promises that make us partakers in his nature. And this is what we need to be reminded of right now. That God in his power has made precious and very great promises to us. And through these promises, we can become partakers of the divine nature. Let's see how this works out in our lives. Verses 5 to 7. And here's our first point. Living in God's promises means I will be adding to the promise. That's what he says. Look at verse 5. It says, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. Look at verse 5. See this push that Peter gives to us. He's really set up this incredible promise that God has granted us the ability to grow in holiness. If this letter is written to you, if you've believed in Jesus Christ, if you've obtained this faith through his righteousness, then you have this incredible opportunity to grow in holiness. Christ has saved you. You have faith. And God, through his promises, has given you the ability to become a partaker in this divine nature. And Peter's saying here, do it. Do it. Make every effort to do it. It's yours for the taking. It's right in front of you. He has has saved you. You have this faith. Make every effort. And this really is the first reason why we should try to grow in our faith. Look at the words carefully here in verse 5. He says, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. For this very reason, 
supplement your faith. What's the reason? What's the reason that we need to add to our faith? And that's what supplement means, right? It means you have the base foundation, you have the faith, and now you need to build upon that. You need to add to that. And he gives us all of these things. But why are we doing this? And we think maybe it's because it's going to be very beneficial for us in our lives. Well, that's going to be our second point. But before we even get to how it benefits us, there's another reason why we should do it. And he says in verse 5, for this very reason, for this very reason, what very reason? Because it's been given to you. Because it's been given to you. Being given this faith is reason enough for you to work hard at it. It would be foolish not to. We should do it for the simple reason that we are able to. The opportunity is there for us to grow And so we should take it. In fact, I think we have a bit of a responsibility to steward our faith well in this. To take a hold of it and to run it hard as we can. We have this precious and great promise. And it would be a shame to waste it in our lives. We can think of this gift as an inheritance. And maybe this will be a helpful way to think about it. You can imagine maybe a a young woman, for instance. Maybe she's 22, 23. A young woman and, and a distant relative dies and leaves her a massive amount of money. And she's 22 and she's just finishing up her first degree and she, she receives $50 million. Now, maybe that's all in the newspaper and, and people start following her story a little bit. And if she, if she turned around and took that $50 million and said, sweet, I never have to work. I'm just going to put it in the bank. I'm going to party and travel for the rest of my life, and that'll just pay my bills, and I'm just going to coast this out. You know, we would look at that and go, wow, what a waste. What a waste. What a waste of a life. What a waste of opportunity. The difference she could have made, instead she just spent it all on herself and decided to be lazy. Maybe she could take all that money and go to the casino. It's her right. It's her money, and she said, I'll double it. But she loses it all and you would say, how foolish, how foolish that someone who was given so much would just squander the inheritance. Or she could continue to work hard and she could finish her degree and she could invest well and she could set up a charity for others and she could, she, she could give to the Lord's work and she could help missionaries and she could see so much happen and she could see it multiplied in different ways and then we would look at her life and go, wow, praise God that it fell onto her, this inheritance. Because she took it and she ran with it and she did such a great job. And we would even say that she owes it to the person who left it to her to do well with it. But when we see someone waste it, we go, wow, if only it was given to me. If only if it was given to me. If only those funds were put in my care. Wow, the things that I would do. Christian, Christian, listen. You've been given the greatest inheritance. You've been given faith from Christ Jesus' righteousness. He has changed you and and he has made you new. He has made you a new creation. And the question is now, what are you going to do with it? Are you going to waste it, or are you going to build on it? We owe it to the one who gave it to us to do well with what we have been given. This is reason enough to work hard. 
This is reason enough to just to honor the person who gave it to us, and in our case, our Lord and Savior. You've been given the most valuable gift. No person could ever give you a gift this great. No distant relative could leave you an inheritance this large. And so for us, partaking in the divine nature, becoming more and more like our Savior, is the most valuable and worthwhile pursuit of our life. Not the easiest pursuit, but the most worthwhile pursuit. To become more and more like Jesus Christ. There's nothing worth, uh, more, worth, more worthwhile, and we have the ability to pursue it, to let our faith grow, to let the effects of our faith not just end in our salvation, but to go so much further than that. And the Lord has put it in you for this to be possible. So what are we supposed to supplement our faith with? How do we add on this wonderful foundation that Christ has laid in our lives? What are we supposed to do with this faith that Christ has put in us, this righteousness that we now have and didn't earn? We've been given this inheritance. What can we do with it now? So glad you asked. Peter tells us. First he says, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. With virtue. Virtue means the highest of moral character. To be above reproach. To be known for your faith, your hope, and your love. A virtuous person is someone who is trustworthy. A virtuous person is someone who is hardworking. A virtuous person is someone who other people look at and go, wow, if, if I could only be more like them because they are so above sin and so above bribery and so above all of the sin in this world, they, they walk in the spirit and not in the flesh. They have put to death the things that Galatians 5 would tell us to put to death in Jesus Christ. Sexual immorality, division, envy, divisiveness, rivalries, fits of anger. But instead, these people that are virtuous are filled with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and self-control. This is a virtuous person. This is someone that we need to strive to be in an attitude that we need to add to our faith. He says, virtue with knowledge. Supplement your faith with virtue, but also virtue with knowledge. It's important for us to make a little distinction here. It's, it's con more confusing in English, so we have to just look at the Greek for a quick second here. The, the word knowledge is used five times in our, in our text today, okay? In verse 2, 3, 5, 6, and 8. All right? In verses 5 and 6, right now what we're looking at... The Greek word is gnosis. I'm not Greek, I can't pronounce everything properly, but it's gnosis, okay? And that literally means knowledge. It's a knowledge that you would obtain. It's something that you could read about, you could hear about, you're growing in knowledge, gnosis. That's wonderful. In verses 2, 3, and 8, um, we translate it as knowledge, but it's a different word. It's a similar word, but it's different. It's epinosis. It has a prefix on the word, and and in, in those cases, it's talking about a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. A saving knowledge in verses 2, 3, and 8. A saving knowledge, an a, a intimate knowledge, a personal knowledge. 
Whereas in 5 and 6, it's talking more about a growing knowledge by reading the word of God, by studying who Christ is. It's important for us to make that distinction so that we're not confused. We're growing in the knowledge through study of the word. We know more and more of our Savior as we trust in him through our lives. We grow in understanding of how God works as we trust him through trial. We must be adding this knowledge to our faith. But it doesn't end there. He says, and knowledge with self-control. Knowledge with self-control. What good is knowledge if we're not self-controlled? Because the knowledge that we are increasing in leads to an increased ability to control one's self. You see, when we, when we know more of who Jesus Christ is, we are able to start to control and suppress the works of flesh in our lives and rely on the works of the Spirit. Self-control here can be translated, and I believe in the KJV it is, as temperance. Temperance. It's a word we don't use much now, but it means a moderation in action, thought, or feeling to be restraint. I love Spurgeon's commentary on this verse. He only writes one line in commentary, whereas usually he expounds a bit more, but he writes this. He says, It is ignorance that is intemperate and rash. It's ignorance that leads to a lack of self-control and someone being rash. But when we're filled with knowledge, not being ignorant of who our Savior is, when we continue to grow and make every effort to grow in our knowledge, it will only lead to more self-control. Do you struggle in self-control? Pursue knowledge. Pursue knowledge. He continues, he says, and self-control with steadfastness. Steadfastness. We are to continue in these things We are to continue and be unending in our pursuit of these things. Determined to grow. Determined to believe in the promises and the great promises of our God. Having them ever before us. Steadfast, steadfast, steadfast. Not turning to the left. Not turning to the right. Steadfast in the pursuit of Jesus Christ. Don't fall when there's the first sign of trouble. Be steadfast. Don't deny the Lord when there's a moment of persecution. Be steadfast. Don't turn away from your faith when there's a little bit of conflict. Be steadfast. Don't turn from the work that God has called you specifically to when there's a little bit of conflict. Be steadfast. Be steadfast and grow in these things. It says steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness. We are to be imitators of our Savior, aren't we? Jesus Christ, in our pursuit of the divine nature, becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. For he is perfect in divinity, since he is the fullness of God, as Colossians 1 would say. And he is God himself. And as we imitate our Savior, our godliness will only increase. And what does he say? Godliness with what? Brotherly affection. Godliness with brotherly affection. You know, we are to have an affection for one another in the body of Christ that is 
stronger than any other kind of friendship. We are to have a brotherly affection for one another that binds us together because our greatest love is the same. There's nothing that the brotherly affection, the, the coming together in fellowship with Jesus Christ could, could, should, that would be able to rip us apart. Our, our care, our consideration, support, and attitude towards each other should only be filled with affection. Oh, how Satan hates it when brothers dwell in unity. But how sweet brotherly affection and unity is within the church of Jesus Christ. Our flesh wants division. If you ever see division, it's from the flesh. There's no room for it when we're growing and we're pursuing with every effort brotherly affection. And you might say, yes, yes, of course, I agree with that. Yes, but, 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 look at what they're doing. Look at what they did to me. Look at what they said about me. Look how they're treating one another. Let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. Since when does our moral responsibility rely on the actions of others? Since when does our brotherly affection rely on the actions or the attitudes of other people? Never. No, we must take responsibility for our own faith and supplementing our own faith that is in Jesus Christ and growing in brotherly affection. Growing in a care and an adoration and a, and a love for one another so deeply, even in the midst of difficulty, I love whenever there's a list like this in scripture, and there are many, a, a virtue list, if you will, they never make any asterisks that saying, unless other things are happening, or unless you're treated poorly, or unless things are difficult. No, we're called to do these things because we have an obligation, because of the faith that we have received from Jesus Christ. And praise God that regardless of what anyone else does, we can still grow and supplement our faith in this way. Because God in his precious and very great promises has made this available to us. Each of us must not look outwardly, but we must decide that we will look inwardly and upward. Remembering, remembering that God through his divine power has promised us these things that we may become partakers of his divine nature. He finishes off with love. Oh, how all of these lead to and flow from love. The love we have for God and the love we have for people. The deepest part of our heart filled with love so that everything is saturated in love. Everything we do is for love's sake. The way we relate, the way we argue, the way we disagree, all for love's sake. The way we rebuke and the way we comfort, all for love's sake so that nothing will be done in selfishness. A love that is sacrificial, a love that is enduring, a love that keeps no record of wrong, a love that always thinks the best, a love that hopes the best. We must all take a look at ourselves and ask a few, a few very important questions. Is this letter written to me? Like in the first two verses, is this letter written 
to me? Have I obtained this faith? Is it written to me? Is it written to you? Secondly, do I know the promise of God and what he can do in my life? And third, are you making every effort to this end? I love that. He doesn't leave any room for laziness. Make every effort. Make every effort to supplement your faith with these things. And we can do it because God will help us. That's his great and precious promise. Let's continue in verse 8 to 10. If I'm living a life in this promise, I will be increasing in fruitfulness. Be increasing in fruitfulness. Look at verses 8. It says, For if these these qualities are yours and are increasing, they will keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. And here we see the blessings that we receive personally from supplementing our faith. Of course, we do it out of obligation because we've been given this opportunity, but look also, there is such a blessing and such a grace that comes from not being a lazy Christian, but from making every effort and pursuing this and increasing in these things. And just to be clear, look how Peter separates these qualities from our salvation, okay? At the end of verse... Eight, he says, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look, you, if you, you already have the knowledge of Jesus Christ. You have the faith. The question now is, what are you going to do with it? And he separates these things for our salvation from our sanctification. The salvation is purely what God has done in our lives, and our sanctification is how we cooperate with the Spirit of God to grow in likeness of Christ. So if these qualities of yours, have you taken hold of them? Are you increasing in them? Let me ask you this question. What believer in Christ would ever wish to be barren of fruit or stagnant in their growth? Who would wish this? Who would wish this? Who would wish to be barren of fruit in their life, ineffective in the work of the Lord, and stagnant in their growth? I don't think any Christian would say that that is their goal, that they would not grow I love the promise here that there is fruitfulness and effectiveness for every believer in Jesus Christ. Every believer. It doesn't say age. It doesn't say time in the Lord. It doesn't say anything. But every believer has the opportunity to be fruitful and effective. That's you. That's me. That's our church. That's us. You can be fruitful and effective for him if you are in him. We really need to fight against our culture here. And we need to define fruitfulness and effectiveness. Because fruitfulness and effectiveness in Jesus Christ might not look like fruitfulness and effectiveness in this world. So I made a little definition here. It's not perfect by any means, but hopefully it serves our purposes here. What is fruitfulness and effectiveness in the Christian life? It's exercising and growing my God-given gifts to see the proclamation of the gospel in our world so that the lost can be saved and the saved can be matured. This is why we're here, 
to exercise and grow in my God-given gifts, to see the proclamation of the gospel in our world so that the lost can be saved and the saved can be matured. If through your working, through your giftedness, you are as an individual or within our body seeing lives transformed for the glory of God and people who are already in Christ matured in Christ, then we are being fruitful and effective. Our fruit is not temporal, but it is eternal. And it's hard work. It's sacrificial work. It doesn't come easy, but it brings lasting joy. See, our world's idea of fruit might be very different. Often in this world, our goal is to find the path of least resistance, the easy way forward, doing the bare minimum, living for experiences, living for self, just to travel and just to see the world all about me, constantly about me, not contributing to society as much as I could and definitely not contributing to the local body of believers. Floating through life, consuming things, but never helping or giving. Consumed with self and not with Christ. You see, this doesn't lead to fruit. It leads to the most terrible thing that we could ever hope on ourselves. Ease and comfort. No, we are to be the hardest working, the most fruit-bearing, joy-filled people in the whole world and as we have the mindset of Christ that he has put in us as we work hard unto the Lord and heartily unto the Lord as Colossians 3:23 would say as we seek to grow in all of the qualities listed here and partake more and more in this divine nature we will bear eternal fruit in our lives that is so much better so much more lasting so much more satisfying than any of the comforts that this world has to offer But what is very real in the church and what is stated in verse 9 is that there are people who are saved, who have been given this faith through the righteousness of Christ. There are people among us and in the church who are okay to take the salvation offered to them but squander their lives in unfruitfulness. What a waste! What a shame. What a terrible thing that is to watch someone take the most precious of gifts and just toss it in the garbage. Not only is the church deprived of an important member of the body of Christ through their gifts and specific gifts that they have to bless the local church, but the person is robbing themselves of a life of partaking in the divine nature that leads to eternal joy. Devoid of fruitfulness and effectiveness, lacking the joy that comes with it. Look at verse 9. It says, For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind. Having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins, don't we need a reminder? Don't we need a reminder? Because so many of us could just be walking through this life so nearsighted, we're blind, we forget, oh, what Christ has done for us, how he has changed our lives, how he has died for us, how he has saved us from death eternally, how he has made us a new creation, how we have forgotten and our eyes need to be opened, we need to take the blindfold off. 
It's like you're walking around without any light in your life, bumping into things, unable to see, unable to see the magnitude of what Christ has done in our lives. And maybe wearing a blindfold for so long that you start to think it's pretty good in there. But in God's eyes, he just sees you stumbling around. We need, to, we need to picture this and how ridiculous this is for the Christian. We really do. We need to, we need to picture this, okay? So I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have an illustration here. I'm going to use the Raptors, okay? Because I know they got eliminated last week, and, but they did well last year, okay? So we can still use them in sermon illustrations. But you can imagine us watching the game on the telly. And you, and you look at a player, and maybe it's like Siakam, right? One of the players, and he's... And you're like, wow, he's getting better every year. He's already signed his contract into the NBA, but he's, uh, every year you can tell, he's practicing hard, he's training hard, he's getting better and better and better. Praise the Lord. Very good. But you can imagine how ridiculous it would be if a, if a player who has signed for the Raptors, they're on the NBA um, uh, payroll and, 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 and they're there and they go, you know what, I just want to sit on the bench. And, and what I'm going to do is actually I'm going to go out on the court wearing a blindfold because the coach will definitely bench me then, right? And this player will go out there and sneak on his little blindfold, maybe just moves his face mask up, I don't know, but he's, he's on, the, on the court and he can't hit a shot because he can't see the net and he doesn't know how to stay in bounds because he can't see the line and he can't help his teammates because he doesn't know where to pass the ball. Utterly and crazy and useless and we all look at that illustration and go, that is absolutely nuts. That's the point. That's the point. It would be crazy. And yet us in Jesus Christ have been given so much more. The greatest contract that can't be ripped up. Our salvation is secure in Jesus Christ, as Christ, and yet some of us are walking around with blindfolds, unable to help others because we can't see, unable to aim for the goal because our eyes are covered, stumbling around like nearsighted people and even blind people. What a disaster. What a disaster and a wasted life not making every effort to supplement their faith, not trying to grow and see the fruit of Jesus Christ in their lives. Have we forgotten what our goal is? Have we forgotten what price has been paid for us? Have we forgotten what we have been saved from? Jesus has brought brought us onto the greatest team, the family of God, and paid the greatest price himself on the cross, dying for our sins so that we may be saved from the greatest punishment, eternity in hell. How can we walk through this life not giving everything we have back to God? How can we not want to become more and more like our Savior and, and seek the fruit through hard work for him? Everything else will be burned up. Everything else will be burned up. But the fruit, the fruit that we bear for Jesus Christ will last into eternity. And that leads us into verse 11. I will never regret the effort. Living in God's promises means I will never regret the effort 
Verse 11 says, For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You'll never regret the effort. None of us will ever regret the effort we put into supplementing our faith, adding to our faith, growing in these qualities. None of us will ever regret the time we spent in Bible study and in prayer. None of us will regret the time we spent loving one another. None of us will regret the things we sacrificed so that we could see the gospel of Jesus Christ go forward. None of us will ever regret it. It will only be rewarded. There will be a reward that is so wonderful, that is eternal, that will make the hard work that we're doing now seem like an incredibly wise investment. We already all do this. We save for the future. We put money aside so that one day when we're no longer able to work, we have something to live on. It only makes sense. We plan for the future. We invest now so that we can retire maybe one day. I think a better way of looking at this, though, would be a runner who's running a marathon. 42.2 or something kilometers. Never done one myself, as you might be able to tell. But, wow, that's a lot of work. And I know there's people in our church that run marathons, and wow, that's incredible. Very difficult. Running that marathon, and I'm sure at the 10, 20, 30 kilometer mark, your legs are beginning to hurt. The pain sets in. The fatigue is great. And not only is the physical exhaustion there, it's it's a mental game. You start to say to yourself, just, you know what, just give up. We'll do it next time. Just take a seat. Just, just, this is too much. Don't finish. Don't finish. Don't finish. But those who press on, those who continue, those who finish the race and work hard until the end, they are greeted by a cheering crowd. They are greeted by a big banner that says, you've done it. The loved ones that have come to watch them are celebrating their accomplishment. And there is a sense of accomplishment that is so wonderful that makes all the hard work worth it. And this is the entrance Peter is talking about here. All the hard work, all the supplementing of our faith, all the adding to, growing in these qualities, all of those good works go ahead of us and meet us at the gate into the internal kingdom of our God. And one day it'll all be tested. And if it survives the test, we'll be rewarded. And if our works are found to be lacking or selfish, And not growing in these fruits, they will be burnt up. That's what it says in 1 Corinthians 3.10. You want to flip over there real quick. 1 Corinthians 3. It says this. Verse 10. It says, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I have laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. That's us. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. What he's saying here is you can't save yourself. Only Jesus Christ, the foundation of Christ has saved you. What are you going to build on top of it? Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day, capital D there, talking about the day of the Lord coming back, that day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burnt up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Was he saying your salvation is secured, but what are you doing with it? 
And if you're building upon it with precious metals, the, the hard work of supplementing your faith with these things, if you're, if you're building upon it with these things, not with just hay and straw, things that won't be burnt up, things that last into eternity, you will be rewarded. You will be rewarded. You will never regret the hard work you put in today. And I think truth, truthfully the, that all believers seek to bear fruit in their lives. Those who are connected to the true vine are bearing fruit. And this is what we are to do, diligent in confirming our calling, this effectual, this divine-powered calling, this, this salvation that we have been given, this promise that has been made possible for us in growing in holiness. We must take hold of it. Do well with it because it's been given to us. Do well with it because it will bring fruitfulness and know that we will never, ever regret it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace and your goodness, Lord. How amazing it is that, Lord, we, us, sinners, Lord, us who were doomed, God, we who were dead in our trespasses and sins, Lord, you have taken us from death into life, and not just to life, but to life abundantly, that we can grow and partake in the divine nature. Lord, we deserve none of this, God, and how can we be slothful now? Lord, invigorate us. Lord, stir us up, O oh God, that we might seek to supplement our faith with all these great qualities. That we would glorify you and see fruit in our lives and fruit in our church. Lord, we love you. We need you. Be with us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.